Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why having a drink to cope can actually make you feel worse, why human brains shrunk 3,000 years ago, and the strange history of high heels. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Here's a familiar scene. You've had a tough day, so you pour yourself a drink to unwind. But a bit of booze to take the edge off can quickly turn into a daily habit when you're stressed. When that stress is prolonged, like, I don't know, nearly two years into a global pandemic, it can become downright dependence. And it really can become that. Nearly one in four Americans reported drinking more alcohol to cope with their stress at the COVID-19 pandemic's one-year mark. So, the urge to drink when you're stressed is common. But a new study shows that that just doesn't work. In fact, drinking to cope can actually leave you feeling worse. Scientists at the University of Missouri recruited 110 participants who reported drinking at least once a week. Almost half had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, a mental illness that makes it more difficult to manage emotions and is linked to drinking problems. The researchers included this group so they could capture as much emotional range and likelihood of drinking as possible. Participants completed daily diary entries for three weeks. They recorded how much they'd drunk that day and whether they felt negative emotions like jitters or loneliness. If they had had a drink, they said whether it was to curb those bad feelings or feel more relaxed. They'd also record how much they thought the alcohol helped. And importantly, they'd also rate their actual negative feelings again. While the amount of drinking over the course of the study was all over the map, some only had a single drink for the entire three weeks, others had up to 18 or just under a drink a day. But when it came to the participants' self-assessments, there was a definite pattern. If they said they were drinking to cope with anxiety or depression, they tended to say it had helped to resolve their unpleasant emotions. But when researchers reviewed participants' actual emotional scores, the alcohol hadn't helped. It had no impact on anxiety, and people drinking to cope with depression actually felt worse afterward. That was especially true if they also had alcohol use disorder. Scientists say that discrepancy represents a placebo effect. Participants who drink to cope expect alcohol to make them feel better, so they believe that it does. But their actual feelings probably stay the same or get worse. So don't listen to all those country crooners singing about drinking heartache away. Maybe beer never broke their hearts, but it didn't heal them either. Human brains are big, really big. Our ancestors started growing larger and larger brains around 2 million years ago. But weirdly, they didn't stay that way. Around 3,000 years ago, human brains got smaller. And to find out why, scientists turned to ants. But let me back up for a second before I bring in the ant part. Researchers who study human evolution have long been fascinated by the development of our brains. But unfortunately for them, brains aren't often preserved as fossils. But skulls are. That means a researcher can estimate the size of an ancient human's brain by measuring the inside of a fossilized skull. The researchers behind this new study used measurements of nearly a thousand skulls. Some of them were fossils and others were modern. 
They analyzed that data and found that brain size changed at three points in human history. Around 2.1 million years ago, our ancestors' brains got way bigger. The same thing happened again around 1.5 million years ago. Those shifts fit with what scientists already knew about human evolution. Those bigger-brained humans were eating better diets and living in larger social groups than their ancestors. But it was the third and most recent change that took the researchers by surprise. According to their evidence, human brains got smaller about 3,000 years ago. That means that you and I might have smaller brains than the people who invented writing or domesticated the horse. But this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Researchers think civilization is behind the change. See, it takes a lot of energy to keep a big brain running. That means when food is scarce, you want the smallest brain you can get away with. And when you live in a huge group where you can put your heads together, you don't have to do quite as much thinking. And neither do ants. Research in ants has shown that individuals living in large, complex groups tend to have smaller and more efficient brains. One reason is that the labor necessary to keep the colony alive is divided, so individual ants can specialize and no single ant is responsible for making decisions. The researchers behind the study of humans think those patterns offer a window into our own evolutionary history. As societies grew larger and more complex, the demands on individual humans changed. Our more recent ancestors were able to specialize. We also began to share knowledge across a lot of people and even store it outside of our brains through writing. Group decision-making might have played a part as well. This research is pretty speculative, but it offers an important reminder that bigger isn't always better, even when it comes to brains. History is weird sometimes, and the history of high heels is no exception. It's so full of twists and turns, we decided to remaster this story we did about it back in 2018. So here it is. Cody, have you ever tried wearing high heels? No. My feet are huge, so... Yeah, that would be difficult. It'd be really hard to find a... a yeah. Yeah, high heels are definitely a skill that you have to master. They don't feel normal. I would imagine, yeah, they look difficult, and I'm not averse to trying them. Sure. But like I said, I, I wore a men's 11 and a half, which is a women's, like, I don't know, 200 or something. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just don't know any women that are that tall or have right, that big right. feet. So. Well, we do live in Chicago and drag race is huge here. So I'm sure you could find somebody. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's <laughs> plenty of places I could I could go out of my way. If I, if I ever pop into one of those shops on Halstead, I'll give it a shot and yeah. let you know how it goes. <laughs> Take them for a spin. Yeah. Well, actually, high heels used to be for men. They came to Europe in 1599 when a group of horse-riding Persian diplomats rode from Moscow to Lisbon, looking for allies in the war against the Ottoman Empire. The heels were actually a technological innovation that kept the riders secure in their stirrups. Fast forward about 50 years, and King Louis XIV of France was really into Persian culture. He also happened to be five foot four, which was short even back in those days. There's actually a portrait from 1701 that shows him dressed to the nines, and in it, he's wearing high-heeled shoes with red-painted heels that he decreed that only certain people could wear. So why did women start wearing them? Believe it or not, it's because European women were starting to assert their equality. Author Elizabeth Semelhack wrote, quote, You had women cutting their hair, adding epaulettes to their outfits. They would smoke pipes. They would wear hats that were very masculine. 
And this is why women adopted the heel. It was in an effort to masculinize their outfits, unquote. Eventually, you ended up with thick heels for men and skinny heels for women, and the trend kind of died off in men around the turn of the 19th century. That's around the time period fashion scholars call the Great Male Renunciation, which is when men's colorful, flamboyant clothing became more drab and uniform. Think cloaks and jerkins going to gray business suits. But hey, it's never too late for a comeback. I do have a cloak. Nice. I'm also surprised heels aren't still popular with guys in today's dating world because you always hear from short guys that they complain because they say girls like tall guys. And right. There you go. That's why God invented high heels. Well, you still have cowboy boots. Those have heels. Oh, so true. You, yeah, you got a loophole there. Wow. I yeah. like it. There's your life pro tip for the day for dating. <laughs> cowboy boots. Perfect. All right, Ashley, let's recap the main things we learned today. Well, we learned that drinking to cope doesn't work. It can even make you feel worse. According to a study, you probably think the drink helped you feel better, but that's mostly because you expected it to. And researchers found that people's actual ratings of their emotions either stayed the same or got worse after drinking. There are healthier and more effective ways to cope. I'll drink to that. <laughs> but also, I think a really great way to replace your end-of-day drink is by putting something in its place because it's not just about like the actual substance you're consuming, but there's a ritualistic element to it, right? Yeah. And um, I've talked about this before on the show, how I got my wife a soda stream and she used to carbonate her own water and all that. But then she took this job and she was just really busy and we started buying flavored water again, you know, like bubblies and LaCroix and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, well, on, on the one hand, it's cheaper to do the other thing. Why do we need to be buying a LaCroix, right? But there was something about the ritualistic aspect of just cracking open a can and that, that just being like a refreshing kind of ritualistic thing that helped her decompress. So or you could replace your beer with uh, flavored water or maybe make tea or just stand outside and look at your yard or look off your balcony in your apartment or whatever it is. There are different things that you can do to fill that in. And it may offer many of the psychological benefits that you think you're getting from drinking alcohol that you don't need to drink alcohol to get. Yeah. Or replace it with non-alcoholic beer. I actually started kind of taste testing a lot of different non-alcoholic beers because I had been doing this thing where I only drink on weekends. So whatever I drank during the week had to be non-alcoholic. And I was like, let's try it because there are a lot of like microbreweries that are making craft non-alcoholic beers now. Not all of them are great, but some of them really are. I'm a huge fan of athletic brewing. They make the most, I would say, realistic non-alcoholic beer that I've tried. And the weirdest thing happens. Like when I've had a stressful day and I sit down and I crack open a non-alcoholic beer, I get the same relaxation as if I was drinking an alcoholic beer. It's, it is placebo. It's absolutely a placebo effect. But it works for me. I mean, it works. <laughs> yeah, that's okay sometimes. And there's some pretty good non-alcoholic IPAs out there. Yep. Athletic Brewing makes a pretty good one. Yeah. Nice. Good tip. I would recommend their, their Hazy IPA. I think that's their best one. Love Hazy IPAs. Although now it's stout season, so that's all I'm going to drink. For They've them. got a good one of those, too. Oh, let's go, dude. <laughs> oh, I'm shilling for them. <laughs> Alcohol, <laughs> Athletic Brewing, hit me up. Yeah. We'll, we'll do business. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> We also learned that human brains got smaller around 3,000 years ago, after millions of years of growth. Scientists think that's because we started living in bigger, more complex societies. 
And they think that because that's what happened to ants. Ants in large groups tend to have smaller brains because they can specialize. And researchers think that's what happened to our ancestors. With the advent of large-scale agriculture, they were able to specialize. And with writing, they were able to store knowledge outside of their brains. Bigger isn't always better. I feel like I probably have a very small brain. <laughs> I know we do. Can you imagine if, like, in addition to our podcasting jobs, we had to, like, farm our own food and fetch our own water our brains would be huge. Look, I can barely go downstairs to make myself lunch during the workday. Right. Let alone any of the things you just mentioned. How I'm a <laughs> functional father in any way is still a wonder to me every day. Yeah, yeah. But you're a functional podcaster, and that's what's important. That's that's important for <laughs> sure. And speaking of fathers and men and dudes and people like me, high heels used to be a guy thing. They actually helped horseback riders stay secure in their stirrups hundreds of years ago. And they became fashionable for men in Europe soon afterwards. Women actually started wearing them to assert their equality. And men just kind of stopped wearing them around the turn of the 19th century. Now most men dress up by wearing black or gray business suits instead of fun clothes like high heels and cloaks and jerkins. And that's stupid. And I still have my cloak. And I wish I could wear it more often. By the way, a jerkin is a man's short, close-fitting jacket. It looks kind of like a vest, in case you, like I, were wondering. Oh. It's been a few years since we did that story. I don't know what I was saying. <laughs> You're talking to someone who plays so much Final Fantasy. Oh, you could have told me. Oh, I, you can't, I could tell you about jerkins and cullets. And uh, what's a cullet? I don't remember, but it's ah, a piece of clothing. On. No, I do remember. Uh, <laughs> it's actually women's knee length trousers cut with very full legs to resemble a skirt. Like culottes. Oops. That's how it's pronounced. Oh, I did meant you say cullets. cullets. Yeah. All right. Fine. Well, uh, yeah. Culottes. Culottes are popular with middle aged ladies today, as I learned from the movie Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, which I saw on an airplane. I actually had a heated debate with a host I used to produce for at WGN Radio when I made a reference to shurikens. And in a previous story, he had been talking about doubloons. And every single listener in the Chicago area immediately knew what a doubloon is. You know what a doubloon is. It's like a kind of currency. Right. Okay. Do you know what a shuriken is? Mm -mm. (sighs) Mm-mm. Okay. All right. It's it's just me. It's, It's just me. It's just me. I'm the only one. That it's the throw. It's a ninja throwing star. Oh, shuriken. A shuriken, but the ninja turtles used to throw them. So I assumed, I guess wrongly, that everyone knew what a shuriken was. But I guess not. Yeah. No. Never. Never. Throwing star. That's how I know of it. <sighs> Fine. But again, you play a lot of video games. I do play a lot of video games. But you know what? Now our audience knows what a shuriken is. That is a victory. For me specifically, and no one else. A jerkin and a shuriken. Combine the two, you're styling. I'm, I'm wearing a jerkin. I'm throwing a shuriken. I've... Culottes don't rhyme with that, but that's okay. <laughs> Today's writers were Steffi Drucker, Grant Curran, and Ruben Westmus. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer. Our producer and audio editor is Cody Goff. Put on your robe and wizard hat. Then join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious.